me. Somebody told me about it this last week. And just this idea of you go into outer space and you spend time on that space station and your brain orients to life without gravity, right? And so they set a pin up here and they know it's going to come back to it and it'll be right there. And when you come back to Earth, though, you have to reorient and you get to this place where it, it didn't work. It's not staying there. It's coming down here. And life is, feels like it's upside down and backwards and inside out. And I, I was watching that and I thought, oh, man, that's what it's like being a Christian. It's like we live in a world that says things are one way. And we come at the church and we hear it's different. It's, it's different than the world outside. It's, it's a different reality. We serve a God who loves us rather than wants us to work for him. We serve a God who, who sacrifices everything on our behalf and saying, you need, instead of saying, sacrifice everything for me. It's all backwards and upside down. And that's the Christian life. Jesus uses parables in the New Testament as he was teaching and telling us stories to help us orient ourselves to life in his kingdom, much like the astronaut has to orient himself to life in space or orient himself to life on earth, we orient ourselves to a new reality, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is coming to us at all times. So that's what we've been doing. We're coming to the end of our series. We have one more week. Next week, uh, Pastor Heidi will be preaching. I was waiting for a woo-hoo. Yeah. <laughs> Your fan club didn't show up today, Heidi. Oh, there I, oh, you guys, you missed your chance. Do you want a second chance? Next week, Pastor Heidi will be preaching. There we go. And uh, is that, you feel better now, Heidi? Okay. Shoo, okay. Yeah, they do like you. They just aren't awake yet. It's okay. So we're going to be uh, continuing and ending our series next week on parables, and today we're going to be looking at one of the last parables that Jesus taught, and we're going to be looking in the book of Matthew, chapter 25. So if you want to open up your Bibles there. So how many of you have ever prepared for the big day? You're like, what? The big day. I mean, there's a lot of big days in life, right? Some of you, it might be for your 16th birthday, big day, getting your driver's license, big day. Uh, Getting married. That was a big day. And that's what I'm going to talk about in a minute. But some other people, like maybe it's a a graduation, a degree, a PhD, coming to school, the big day, the day that defines your future, right? The day that is going to change everything for you. So I was thinking about uh, Heidi and I's wedding day. We're coming up on 20 years this February. So the fact that I remember any details from that day is a miracle because it was 20 years ago, but it has absolutely changed my life. You know, a good woman will do that for you, right, men? Right, 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 good women? You guys, you're gonna, you just missed another chance. We had an opportunity earlier to woohoo Heidi, and then Mr. Chance, so I don't, I don't know if I'm going to give you a second go. And I did hear a few good women saying, yep, mm-hmm, amen. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about it, though, from the day that I asked Heidi to marry me, which was, you know, it was a magical moment. We were down on the beach in uh, Edmonds, Washington. We did this hike through the rainy woods and down onto the beach, and I had a backpack with Martinelli's and a diamond ring in there and a, and a letter. I know, I was like, I was super romantic 20 years ago. 
I'm still, I'm like, I need to remember. I need to get some lessons from my old self. But anyway, so we went down to the beach, and, and I handed her this letter. And she's, I mean, we'd already basically talked about it. I had already bit the bullet and talked to her dad. So she knew this was coming. And I don't know how you didn't figure out, or probably she did. She probably just said, oh, I'm so surprised, and made it up. But so we down on the beach, and then the, you know, the, the warden came by because he says, you can't drink alcohol on the beach. I'm like, it's Martinelli's, I promise. And so, and I proposed, and she said yes, and it was amazing. I just really made that seem anticlimactic, didn't I? A little bit. A little bit. Well, you know, the walk home was pretty incredible, so it was, and from that moment forward, my life utterly changed. Uh, I began to think about all of the things that we had to do to get married, you know, in, in American culture, there's a lot of things that you do to get married. Now, I told somebody recently, I'm like, you know what? You don't have to do any of those things. 25 bucks, you get a marriage license. Two, two witnesses, three witnesses, four witnesses, whatever. We sign the thing off and you're married. Boom. But in American society, we like to do big weddings. And we were at a big church. There was a lot of people there. There was over 500 people at our wedding. Yeah. <laughs> My, my best man, I was, I, was in, I was at the church I was serving at, so I was in my office nervously pacing around, and my best man comes and knocks on my door, sticks his head in, and he goes, dude, you are going to get a lot of presents. You know? <laughs> sure enough, you know, we got a lot of presents. We're still using many of them. Um, so, you know, just thinking about all the details for that wedding day, like vows and dresses and invitations. We even, like, Heidi had a friend that had this little silk screen machine that you, you write something out and you stick it under this light and you press a button and it goes poof and it's like bright light and everybody's blind and then you can, we printed napkins. We like hand printed 500 napkins. Then we had our invitations, we had uh, other rings, you know, not just her engagement ring, but my ring. Then we got her another ring and we just all these details that defined every moment. And they were all things that before, the day before we got engaged, I wasn't thinking about, right? The day before we got engaged, really, I was worried about talking to her dad, who's really scary. But I was thinking about, you know, what I needed to do. I needed to do laundry this week. She's saying, no, you didn't. Uh, she was thinking I needed to go grocery shopping. I needed to pay my bills. I needed to go to work. I, needed, I was thinking about all this just day-to-day stuff I got to do. But then I got engaged, and suddenly I've got a whole nother list, and that list trumped everything else, right? That list becomes all important. And then I'm thinking not just about that list, but about the day. February 26th, 2000, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I think. I think it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I remember the day, though. We got that much, right? And I'm thinking about that day, the day I'm going to get married. And I'm telling people, hey, I'm getting married. I'm so excited. This is my, this is my fiance. I no longer introduce her as this is my Heidi, this is my fiance, and this is, you know, my wife-to-be. Everything in my conversation began, it came about that day. I was living in anticipation. I was telling everybody that I was getting married. And then you go and you have that day, the big day, and then after that big day, that big day winds up defining everything after it, right? I mean, everything after that, if you're a, like, if you, let's say you're a student, you've passed your boards and, you, and your final exam, or you do your PhD study and you, you go and you defend it, and then they give you the special cap, you know, the square weird cap thing in a, in a robe, and you've got your PhD, or you get married, you get a ring, and you get a wife. Everything from that point forward is different because of that day. Well, today's parable is about one of those moments, the big day. 
the wedding feast of the Lamb. All through the Bible, this day has been prophesied. In fact, even in the first century, the people of Israel were longing and waiting and anticipating that day. They were preparing for that day. They were making the wedding invitations. They were thinking about the food. They were thinking about the guests. They were preparing for that day. And it's prophesied over and over again in the Old Testament. In the book of Hosea, the prophet says this, that God is saying to us that we will no longer call him our slave master, but we will call him our husband. In Isaiah 61, we have this image of God dressing his people in wedding clothes of salvation, and he readies them for the big wedding. And then in the New Testament, Revelation 21, we see that God's house is no longer separate. You know, the, the husband and wife are not living in different apartments. No, they're living in the same house. God's dwelling is with his people. And in that place, there's no more tears. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. The old is gone and the new has come. It's a parable today that we're going to read about being ready for that day. Looking forward to that day. And the question becomes, how will you be when that day comes? Will you be ready? Let's read Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Nice even split. For, then, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the, Lord, and, the, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. Jesus, I just pray this morning that these words that you spoke 2,000 years ago would come to life again for us. God, that this uncomfortable subject of of waiting and watching and being ready for you, Lord Jesus, would pierce our hearts this morning. God, I come humbly and we ask that you would speak to us, not my words, God, not the things that are in my heart or my mind, but your words, your thoughts. I pray that those things would be planted in each one of us, that you would tend it, that you would water it, that you would allow it to grow and to bear fruit. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to take a drink. Is that all right with you guys? This is lemon, lemon, glazed lemon loaf tea. It smells like a Yankee candle. Tastes like lemon loaf. Pretty tasty. All right. So this parable is an interesting parable because it's, it's, it's set at the end of Jesus' time on earth. It's set at the end of all of his preaching and teaching. In fact, the, the couple of chapters right around it chapter 23 through 25, it's kind of the beginning of the end. Jesus has predicted his death for the third time. I don't know if you guys knew that, but as he was going along, he's telling people what's coming. He's like, he saw the, not just the writing on the wall, but he knew his father's will, and he saw this coming, and he told his disciples, and three times he predicted his own death. 
And so he's predicted his death for a third time. And in the middle of all that, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders and rulers of the day, they were getting pretty hot and bothered about Jesus' teachings. And they were pressing in hard. They were challenging him at every turn. Every time Jesus turned up to teach, there's somebody right there with a question trying to trip him up. There's somebody there with, with a thought or a, you know, we just want to get you to say something that's heretical so we have a reason to kill you, something that's against the Bible. And Jesus at every turn was, was faced with their challenges, but he had the answer that challenged them in return. And they were confused and they were lost and they were feeling like power was slipping away from them and they were getting upset more and more. And they were looking for ways to kill him. And then in chapter 23, we see Jesus actually go after these Pharisees. And he lays down this sermon. It's called the seven woes. Now, I mean, we don't really do woes today, right? We're like, whoa, which usually means it's something good, right? Did you see that touchdown? Whoa, did you see that? You know, when I look at Heidi, I think, whoa, but then it was like (laughs) totally different kind of whoa. It was whoa on you, dude, for blowing it. And he lays this sermon out and just land blast these guys for their hypocrisy, for their, for their lack of knowing God, for their, their way of being caught up in rules and missing the relationship, just creating religion and placing it on people. And he just blasts them over and over and over again. He calls them blind fools and hypocrites. And then he predicts that Jerusalem, the great city, the center of the world, the center of the Jewish religion, that the great city of Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And that actually took place in 30 AD, just after his death, not too long. It was torn down by the Romans. Jesus, in seeing these things, and Jesus in facing the challenges of the hypocrites, is probably just like you and I would be, right? When you face great challenges, when you face people constantly challenging you or saying that you're this, that, or the other thing, and then you see something horrible, how do you feel? Tired, depressed, sad, hurt? scared. Jesus is a full human, so he's experiencing all of these things. And he goes to gather his thoughts, and he sits down on the side of the Mount of Olives, and he sits down just to, to breathe for a minute. I could just picture him. That's his habit. He, he goes away to quiet places to, to center himself and to be with his father. And so he's gone away, and he's sitting, and his disciples come to him after hearing all of these teachings, all these woes, they're hearing that Jerusalem is going to be torn down. They're kind of freaked out themselves, and they said. Master, when is all this going to happen? Tell us. What, I mean, you see it, so when is it going to happen? And he has this whole teaching in Matthew chapter 24 on when. And it's kind of confusing because he doesn't ever, there's not, there's not ever this moment. He's like, oh yeah, it's going to be April 24th at 4 p.m. You might want to be ready for that. Now he says, no, it's, it's going to be like a thief in the night. Like you're going to be asleep. And somebody's going to sneak in, and boom. He says it's going to be like clouds that roll in, and there's thunder, thunder and lightning, and there's a flash, and boom, it's done, and it's gone. When Heidi and I were over, we had a funeral this last week, and we were in Seattle, and uh, we were sitting in her parents' house one evening, and all of a sudden, the whole house just went like that, and there was this flash of light, a lightning storm suddenly, out of nowhere, at this time of year in Seattle, it's so rare. It never happens. It just blew right over the house and lightning and flash. It was going to be like that, he says. It's going to be fast. It's going to be loud. And it's going to be very obvious when all of these things happen. Because you're going to hear earthquakes. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars and all these things. They're just precursors to that moment. 
There's going to be false prophets that arise. But when the Son of Man returns, after all of these things, it's going to be like lightning, like a thief, clouds of glory, fast and obvious. But when? Nobody knows. He makes a big point of telling us this. Nobody knows. So be ready. Be ready. And then he comes to this parable. He's done a couple of parables before it about fig trees and the coming of the Son of Man and nobody knowing the day or hour. And then he tells this parable that's all wrapped up in first century Jewish weddings, which are really different than 21st century American weddings or 21st century non-American weddings. I mean, this thing's really different. In this day and age, people would come, uh, a man would come and like he'd spot, I'll just put myself and my wife in the story. I would be wandering down the streets and I would see Heidi selling figs. Why? I don't know. She's a fig seller. And I would think, I like this one. And I would buy a fig from her. And then I would go talk to her father and I'd say, Robert, can I marry her? It was really funny when I was studying Jewish weddings, there was this, that was the heading of the thing, can I marry her? And Heidi opens up my computer one day and she goes, what's this? Why does it say, can I marry her? You can't. You're already married. I'm like, no, no, no. That's about first century stuff. So so you'd come and you'd ask the father, can I marry her? And the father would say, well, I don't know. She brings a lot of money in selling figs. In fact, I'd say she brings in, oh, about $300 a month. And if we were to take that amount and multiply it by the number of years that I was expecting she would live with me, which is, you know, the next 50 or 60 years before I die, we would calculate that out to, anybody want to do that math? Because I don't even want to try. I mean, like, that's just too much math. But you get the point. So you come up with a dollar amount. A dollar amount. He'd say, yeah, I think between the fig selling and the dishwashing and all the things that women were expected to do in the first century in his house, that she is worth about this much. Now, talk about what? $180,000. That, you just did the math. Our church treasurer just did the math. Um, about $180,000. So when you pay $180,000, then you can marry her. Talk about an engagement, right? Once you have, there's the price. It's been set. $180,000. You pay that price to me, and then you can marry her. And he is all right. And he goes, and he's a businessman, and he earns a bunch of money, and he, goes, and he, bought, and he pays the bride price, $180,000. But then the father says, thank you for paying the bride price. So now go and build a house so that she may have a place to live, because you ain't living with me. So then he has to go and build a house. So from the point that the bride's price is paid, the bride begins to prepare for the wedding. She gets all of her lady friends together and says, ladies, I'm getting married. And they say, yay. And they get torches and lanterns, and they get oil to light and have ready for the day that the groom comes, because when the groom comes, there's going to be a wedding. And right after that wedding, seven days of party. They don't go to sleep. I don't even know how you do that. I can't, like, I can't skip like an afternoon nap sometimes. But seven days of solid party and celebration once that wedding happens. And so that's what's going on in this, this parable. The bride price has been paid. The groom is off preparing a home. He's off getting the house ready. And the bridesmaids are all gathered together with the bride and they're ready and waiting for the groom to come so that we can go and we can have the wedding and we can have a gigantic feast and nobody wants to miss a good party. You guys with me? 
I'm not sure how amen fits there, but, you know, amen, let that be. Yeah, it would be awesome. So that's what's going on here. There's going to be dancing and all the way to the house. I love that, the, 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 the word from the Lord this morning about dancing. Like that God wants to invite us into that, that sense of celebration, because that's what's going on here. All the way to this new home, the bridesmaids are going to be dancing and celebrating, and they're carrying torches. And the groom often, often, their whole thing was to come like a thief in the night. He would sneak up and try to surprise everybody to see if they're ready. And then they come to the party, and they celebrate all the way there. So imagine in the dark streets, these torches lit, and people dancing, and music going, and they're going to be all excited to get to that party, and they can't wait. That is the parable that Jesus gives us. But the parable has got some but-you-would-thinks in there, right? Now, you would think with a party like we're talking about, with an event, a big day like we're talking about, that all the bridesmaids would be totally ready and totally prepared, especially if you have all this time of paying the bride price and all this time of building a house, that they'd be ready. And five of them were, but five of them were not so much. Five of them were a little bit short. The waiting kind of got to them. Now, everybody here loves waiting, right? We love waiting in this culture. Anybody, we got like a sign-up sheet on the backspace, if you would like. You, you can sign up to wait. Anybody want to sign up for that? You get in line. You get in line and wait to sign up to wait, right? I mean, we like to wait in our culture. I believe this. You know why? Because I've been to Disneyland. I know that people like to wait. We pay 300 bucks to go into a park and wait. Why would we do that? They wait, waiting. We practice waiting. I, at our house, I, I am, it's kind of, actually, I've gotten probably more firm on this thought since I was uh, younger, but I like to try to practice waiting for one another at dinner time, which is really hard, as you can imagine, when you've got teenagers in the house, right? Especially a teenage boy. Uh, we get food, it's cooked, it's on the table, the house smells so wonderful, and I'm like, okay, everybody, let's dish up your meals. Just, you know, you get them ready. And they hit the table, and we all just want to do what? Whoa, let's get this in my mouth as fast as I can. And I'm like, no, stop, wait, stop, wait. Heidi spent a long time making that. Or I spent all afternoon cooking that. Just wait until we all get to the table, and then we can start. Now, when you've got children with forks in their hand, it can be a dangerous thing to ask, right? <laughs> but it usually turns out all right. Waiting is important. Waiting is not something, though, that we like to do. And so Jesus says, these people are waiting. They're waiting for this great party. They're waiting. It's their primary task is to be prepared, to watch and to wait for that groom to come. But five of them, the waiting gets to them, and they start to run out of oil. And the text says here in verse 5, it says, the bridegroom was delayed. Now, this is a big, important word here in this this passage, delayed. Jesus didn't say, and the bridegroom came back immediately, and everybody was ready to go, and there was no waiting, and it just happened. He says, no, the bridegroom is delayed. It's something in this story that's, that's like you wouldn't think it would be there, and yet it is. And then he says, the bridegroom was delayed. He took a long time in getting there, and in that process, they all became drowsy and slept. Slept. Of all the Greek words that I could bring out today, I'm bringing out the word slept. It's kathudu. Isn't that fun to say? Anybody want to learn a Greek word this morning? Let's learn the Greek word for slept. Say kathudu. 
let's try that again. It's like, Kath, you do. Kath, you do. Yeah, it's really fun. And you're going to go home and say, I went to church today and I learned this word, Kath, you do. And they're going to be, wow, what does that even mean? It means slept. I'm going to go home tonight and I'm going to Kath, you do. Anybody else going to Kath, you do this evening? How about this afternoon? The Seahawks. The Seahawks are not playing today. So you can all go home and Kath, you do. Now, it's an interesting word, and the reason I pull it out is because Jesus says that the bridesmaids, all, all ten of them, kathudud. The other times that that word is used in the New Testament, anybody familiar with that word in the New Testament? I know you're all reading in Greek, but he uses it all over the, 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 the place in the New Testament. When Jesus is in the boat and there's a big storm, the disciples are all freaking out and they're saying, we're going to die. And it says that Jesus was in the back of the boat, Kathy doing, sleeping. But it also has it in a couple of other unusual places, like the time that the widow's daughter died. Jesus is out ministering, and this young girl is dead. And it's her only family, her only source of hope. And she is dead and been dead for a while. And people are wailing. Jesus is like, what's wrong? He says, my daughter has died. And he says, oh, don't worry about it. She's only Kathy doing. And then Lazarus, one of Jesus' best friends, dead three days, buried in a tomb. Surely he stinketh, Lord. You got to love the, the, the old uh, what, the King James Version, right? Surely he stinketh, Lord. And he's like, no, open it up. Lazarus is only Kathy doing. He's only sleeping. We would say sleeping the sleep of the dead, right? It can be used interchangeably. But it's, the idea is it's so tired, if you're living, that you're so tired that you seem to be dead. Or you were actually dead. And Jesus says that these bridesmaids, all ten of them, had waited so long that they were cath-you-doing. They were sleeping the sleep of the dead. In their waiting, they died. In their waiting, they died. It's hard to wait patiently when the waiting means waiting so long that you die. That you may not see the coming of the bridegroom. That you may be in a grave someplace. Why is the bridegroom delayed? We don't know. Lots of reasons. The party wasn't ready. The house wasn't complete. There was business to attend to. Reasons that we don't know or understand. He's coming, he says, but he's delayed. And we don't know when he's coming. We only know that it's going to be loud and it's going to be obvious. But he takes so long that we cath you do. We fall asleep. And many of us will, if not all of us. Waiting, in this sense, is aimed at something. We're waiting for that day. We're waiting for the wedding. We're waiting for, for Christ to return we are waiting for the boyfriend to get it right. We're waiting for Mr. Right, which he doesn't exist. We're waiting for the pastor to finish the stupid sermon. <laughs> but waiting in this text is aimed at the groom. These people who are cath-you-doing, waiting unto death, are waiting for the groom to come. They're waiting for the wedding feast that doesn't start until the groom gets there. And as Christians, waiting is a journey that we live on. It's just normal for us. We wait. It's what we do. We wait in expectation. We wait in longing. for the, and We wait with eagerness for that return. But many of us, like the bridesmaids, start cath-you-doing in the process. 
whether we physically die or we die on the inside and sleep a sleep of death, we die toward that thing we're waiting for. We get impatient. But for Christians, that waiting is meant to be a lifelong journey. A lifelong journey to the the purpose and the power and the presence of the living God. And a very specific God, not just any God, not just the gods of this world, not just the universe, but a very specific God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has said that he would return. And it's a very specific kind of journey. It's a journey of risk. It's a journey of trust, and it's a journey of obedience. But it is not without its pitfalls and its setbacks and its pain. It's a journey unto death. It's a big disconnect for us today. We don't, I mean, it's uncomfortable to talk about waiting. It's even uncomfortable to talk about the return of Jesus after two millennia, right? Just get your brain around that. 2,000 years. God's got a pretty different sense of time than I do. God's got a pretty different sense of time. I ought to come back a long time ago. You know, a lot of the early disciples, they thought they're like any second, any day, any moment, any hour, and then they died. And their, their, their disciples were like, any second, any day, any moment, any hour. Rome rises, Rome falls. You know, the world changes. We have the world wars, we have holocausts, we have all sorts of things, wars and rumors of wars. Earthquakes happen. We're like, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening. But it doesn't happen. We keep waiting in risk and trust and obedience. Two millennia. In every age, believers have thought this is it. In every age, there have been people that had visions of his timing and of what's going to happen. In every age, there have been people writing really, really good-selling books showing you from Scripture why next Thursday at 3 p.m. Jesus is coming back. And next Thursday at 3 p.m. comes, and next Thursday at 3 p.m. goes, and what happens? Why didn't it happen? In every age, many Christians have become grown accustomed to their master's absence. We're used to life without Jesus present. We start hedging our bets a little bit. We start doubting. We think, risk my life on this? Eh, trust that he's coming back? Maybe. Wait patiently and obey? Most of us are just tempted to assimilate, to build a life that looks more like the world around us than the kingdom of heaven. Or, to the alternative, to despair to wish that none of this was true, to wish that we couldn't believe this, and to just leave it all behind. And yet Jesus says, wait. Wait patiently, I'm coming. Wait patiently, I'm returning. See, the timing of all of this stuff in this this text, we've written it in English with a nice clear linear timeline, but the the references in the Greek for when this is going to happen are all over the place. They're all over the place. At one moment you're reading it and it's like it's happening in the future, sometime way off. And in another moment we're reading it and it's happening right now. And in another moment you're reading it and it's already happened. It's happening, it's happened, it's in the future, it's in the past, it's in the present, it's all mixed up. So when we're waiting, we need to know that this isn't just a future thing that we're waiting for. We're waiting for the present, for Jesus to come to us right now. Maybe not in bodily form, maybe not on clouds of glory, but come to you now, in a moment, not just a moment of need, but a moment of relationship. We're waiting for the bridegroom to come to us, and yet he's coming at us all the time. 
I love that statement from Sister Wendy Beckett, who's this crazy little nun who likes art. She says, God is coming at us all the time. We just fail to see him. She looks at a piece of art and she says, look, God is coming at us. God is coming to us. He's speaking to us. He's wooing us. He's loving us. And we just miss him. Does that mean I'm done? (laughs) Almost. I should be. (sighs) So open open and be ready. Are you prepared for Jesus to come to you in a moment? I love the psalm. David says that God prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies, a table that God himself sits at and we eat together with our enemies and that is happening in every moment of our day. God is coming to us all the time. Will you see him? Close your eyes for half a second, a little longer. Right now, your eyes are closed and I'm standing here in front of you speaking. When you open your eyes, you could be in the presence of Jesus, physically in heaven. When you open your eyes, you could be standing before angels, worshiping the Lord around the throne. And if you open your eyes and you're sitting here in this church, God still has something for you. God's still coming to you. God's still speaking to you. God's still inviting you. So let's see what happens. On the count of three, let's open our eyes and see where we're at. One, two, three. We're still here. I'm anticipating that at any moment I'm going to blink and I'm just going to be in heaven. But I know that right now my eyes are open. God's still coming to me and inviting me into a relationship with him, which is really what this boils down to. Because the bridesmaids say this, and i got to move quickly. Get your own dang oil. Right? Get your own dang oil. They're like, we're running out. And they're like, no. If I give this to you, I won't have enough. You know, we got great next-door neighbors, and Heidi and I seem to be always on the receiving end of this. We're like, we're making cookies, and we're like, oh, we're out of eggs. Amelia, can you go see if the neighbor has an egg? Oh, we're out of sugar. Amelia, can you go see if she's got sugar? Oh, we're out of flour. Amelia, can you go see if she's got flour? Like, basically, we had nothing to make cookies with. The neighbor had it all, and then she brings it over. It keeps coming back. That's a good neighbor, right? But one time, she's like, I'm sorry, I don't have enough for you. I'm making something myself. She's looking after her own cookie baking. And that's what these bridesmaids are doing. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. No big deal, right? You can borrow some, except for I want to have enough to go to that party myself. Get your own dang oil. In the scripture, the oil is equal to, in my notes I just wrote, oil equals spirit. Oil is equal to the Spirit of God. We were given this image throughout the the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, of the Spirit of God who comes to us like oil poured on top of somebody's head. You know, you think think oil poured on top of somebody's head, that guy's going to be mad, but that's not the case because in the Old Testament, it represented an anointing of God poured out on a person. And when you pour oil on top of something, if you've ever done this before, you know that it permeates everything. I hate getting my hands oily. Like if I have to knead bread that's got oil, like, oh, I hate that feeling because it gets underneath my ring and underneath my fingernails and it absorbs into my skin and I think, oh, it's oil in me. But that's the image that we're given in the Bible is that the Spirit comes upon us like oil poured upon us over the, it says, over the head of Aaron and down his beard. It's like this image, it just permeates, it gets into his hair, and in, his, in his ears, and down his beard and it's on his clothes and it's in his skin and it's all over us, it's intimate. It's touching every part of us. 
And then we get the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, the book of Acts, and the Spirit comes upon us and fills us. The oil doesn't just stay on the outside, but it penetrates us from the inside out. <clears throat> These bridesmaids, they were saved people. They're ten virgins. <laughs> They're pure. They're untainted. They've been saved. They've been rescued. But some of them were foolish, and they were short on this oil that represents God's relationship with them, God's presence in them and on them. They live with a secondhand faith. They live with the crumbs of spirituality. They come to church once a month to receive a sermon to give just enough sustenance to keep them going. They read a good book to, to learn something new. They listen to other sermons and other pastors and other teachers, or they talk to their friends, or they live on their parents' faith. My parents are Christians. Or they live on their spouse's faith, husbands. We live believing that their faith is enough to sustain me. It's a second-hand, leftover, third-hand relationship. Second-hand faith, leftover love, third-hand relationship. And Jesus says to the Pharisees who are doing this very thing, Woe to you, Pharisees and hypocrites. You don't even recognize the kingdom of heaven that's here, and you don't enter into it. You stay on the outside. You live on the crumbs of your faith. You live on the crumbs of things that were said thousands of years ago. You aren't living in the now, in a relationship with God. When things get hard for people who are living on the crumbs of their faith, they drift away. They get angry. They doubt. They hate. They turn and walk away. They're not prepared. They're the five foolish bridesmaids that weren't ready for that bridegroom to come. Because the bridegroom says, I didn't know you. I don't even know you. Do you know the bridegroom? Or do you know about the bridegroom? Do you know the bridegroom? Or do you know religion? Do you know the bridegroom? Or do you know church? Do you know the bridegroom? Or do you know ideals about the bridegroom? The invitation of this passage is not just to wait patiently, but to know Jesus. Not just a prayer, not just a religious ideal, but to know and be fully known. Imagine being fully known, like every part of you, fully known and loved by God. That is the invitation. There's a rabbi, Abraham Her Joshua Herschel, which those in the EHS group will remember this last week talking about this. He was talking about the Sabbath, and he said this to people who do not take Sabbaths. He said, heaven is the great Sabbath. We will spend eternity resting face-to-face -face with God. How do you expect to enjoy that Sabbath if you don't enjoy the Sabbath now? My question to you this morning how do you expect to know and relate to God face-to-face -face for eternity if you don't know and know, know him and experience him now? It's an invitation to a first-hand relationship with God. So let's end with this. I'm going to take a minute of quiet and allow you to ask this question. How is your oil supply? How is your oil supply? Do you know Jesus firsthand? Or do you know him because your parents know him? Do you know him because your wife knows him? Do you know him because you read a book about him? Do you know him because you went to church once? How is your relationship with Jesus?
Is it firsthand? Let's take a minute to contemplate that. Amen. I have a long list of um, responses this morning, and we don't have time, which is really sad because that's the reality of our lives. We live in time. We run out. So I want to just tell you what these invitations are, and I want to leave it to you to choose how to respond to this parable. And I want to invite you. I will be on the backspace eating a root beer float in just a few minutes, as will other people. And I want to invite you to share what your response to this parable is as we talk and, talk and chat. The first one is uh, what Christians call salvation. It's that moment where we say yes to God. In churches, we ask this a thousand million times, um, but the reality is the reason we do that is because if we don't ask, you can't respond. You may need for the first time in your life to say, I want a firsthand relationship with Jesus. And if that's you this morning, it is as close as, Jesus, can I know you? Will you be my savior? Will you rescue me from my mess and my way of doing things and help me walk in your ways? Will you help me reorient my life like an astronaut has to reorient to earth? Second is a new passion. Some of us just need to start waiting a little better. Some of us need to spend our time waiting wisely. We need to turn and risk and trust and obey and invest in our relationship with Jesus and not say, oh, I'm too busy, I don't have time, I don't have, all these other things are more important, but to invest in what's most important. Some of us need to take our next step. We need to, well, it's like, that's what we want, I want new passion, but I need to take one step and I need to start reading my Bible or I need to see who this Jesus guy is or I need to take time and silence to let him speak. There's so many next steps. But if you're like, I don't know what my next step is, that's why I'm here help you. I will help you walk in the grace and goodness of Jesus. And lastly is Advent. Advent is a time of preparation. It's a time to prepare to receive the baby, baby Jesus. It's time to remember that God became flesh and came among us. So maybe this Advent, rather than rushing toward Christmas, you need to press in and move slow and come to church each Sunday and to listen about slowing down and participate in our Advent evening and participate in Bowman Family Christmas. That's going to be crazy. And participate in New Year's Eve and participate in caroling. You're like, slow down. That's a lot of things. It's about slowing down and paying attention to what's most important and the reality of the kingdom of heaven coming in the here and now and walking in it. Maybe you just need to join us this Christmas. Whatever your next step is, I pray that the Holy Spirit right now would spark that in your heart, that you would have the courage 
to speak it to somebody in this room. I'm going to pray a blessing over us, and then we're going to go eat root beer. Lots of root beer. All right? So, Jesus, we thank you for your teachings. We thank you that they are still speaking to us thousands of years later. We thank you that your word is alive and active, and it divides flesh from bone, spirit from flesh, God, that you speak, and you bring new truth to us. And I pray, God, that we would be a church that waits well, that we would live in that tension of that you are coming to us, but you are not yet here, and that we are waiting, and we are awkward, but, God, we are waiting faithfully. We are waiting in trust. We are waiting in obedience. God, bless your spirit upon us this morning. Jesus, as we go from this place, may we know above all that you love us wholeheartedly, deeply and truly. In Jesus' name, amen. If you heard nothing else, hear that. Jesus loves you. And this church loves you too, and so do Heidi and I. Backspace, root beer floats, go get them. (laughs) 